I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to episode 197 of Real Life Ghost Stories. And to kick things off this week, I want to say thanks to some of our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Joanna Fu, Monica Heller, Kayla Klish, Alyssa Shaw, Robin M.G. Kelly, Lisa Shore, Crazy Straw, Emily L., Disa Thanos, Ole Fart, Crystal Kelly, Terry Shannon, Lily Brandstrom, Barry Hayes, Tracy Rawl, Alyssa, Kristen Gunn, Brianna, Karen Carr, and Leslie Friedman. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and appreciate you every single day. And our film review this week, our film review is The Pope's Exorcist. The Pope's Exorcist was released in 2023. It has 6.1 out of 10 on IMDb and 51% on Rotten Tomatoes. Inspired by the actual files of Father Gabriel Amorth, Chief Exorcist of the Vatican, the Pope's Exorcist follows Amorth as he investigates a young boy's terrifying possession and ends up uncovering a centuries-old conspiracy the Vatican has desperately tried to keep hidden. I, I had high hopes for this film. And I'm not entirely sure why. I think 90% of those high hopes came from the fact that Russell Crowe was in this movie. Um, Right, now, before we get into that, let's talk about the likes. So my first like in my like column was that I absolutely loved the music in this film. It was great. I thought the soundtrack was really fun. Who would have thought? Not something I was expecting to say. But you got loads of cool little rock songs. You know, I love Russell Crowe. And if you want to see Russell Crowe bombing around the Spanish countryside from Italy to Spain, apparently, I googled it, Apparently, it's around a 23-hour journey on a Vespa. If you want to see him traveling across Europe on a Vespa with his black cloak billowing out behind him, rock songs blasting, then this is the film for you. Is it worth the fifteen ninety nine that I paid in order to rent this? I mean, I don't know. It was a good scene. I want to see Russell Crowe on a Vespa more often, to be honest. If you uh, if you haven't realised, I love Russell Crowe and um, from what I know of Gabriel Amorth, now I actually know mm, surprisingly little about him, but I know a bit and from what I know of him, he was quite a quirky character. So he was, I think he was quite eccentric in the way that he behaved, particularly in regards to how priests are perceived and expected to behave, regardless of whether or not they are an exorcist. So... I liked the character of Gabriel Amorth in this. He was quirky, he was silly, he seemed to be fun, he was forever cracking jokes. And what more do you want when you're faced with a demon straight from hell than somebody wisecracking beside you? That is what I want. If I have been battling Asmodeus, demon from hell, being drowned by visions of women that I have had sex with when I shouldn't have had sex with them, and I've been watching people levitating and people's necks spinning around and all the usual possession shit. I want a priest next to me who turns to me after it, after it's all been said and done and says, you look like shit. That's what I want. That's what we all need. Somebody to bring you right back down to earth. There was a moment in the beginning of the film where Russell Crowe was getting a slap on the wrist from all the other uncool Vatican priests and cardinals who are like, you can't be going around behaving the way you do. And Russell Crowe was like, listen, I'm Gabriel Amorth. I can do whatever the fuck I want. He doesn't say that, but he pretty much says it. And he's like, my boss is the Pope. You speak to him. But what they talk about in that sequence is the fact that, as they put it, 
98% of possession cases are cases of people who are struggling with their mental health and need a mental health intervention. And I respected them for that. I was like, okay, that is very important to include in there and I'm all for it. And I do think obviously there are cases of possession where people believe they are possessed that are mental health cases and that needs to be addressed. And I was and I thought to myself, okay, this is a good start. I'm I'm impressed with how this film has started so far. We've got Russell Crowe bobbing around Europe on a Vespa being a kick-ass maverick priest. And we've got them saying, look, you know, most possession cases are mental health related. I'm here for that. But I must say that was kind of where my enjoyment of this film ended. And I shouldn't have had such high hopes and nor should I have paid fifteen ninety nine in order to be able to watch it. Look, here's the thing. It's been done to death. We get it. A small child gets possessed. They start swearing a blue streak. They're swearing left, right and centre. They become weirdly sexualised. It's very scary. Somebody crawls up the wall. We've been down that road. We've seen it all. And in this instance, the people who are possessed or the people who are the victims of this possession, they inherit this big crumbling abbey. So this woman, her husband dies and she inherits this big old crumbling abbey in the countryside in Spain and she moves there with her two kids with the intention of doing it up, getting it up to a better standard and then selling it on. And I would like to say that for a considerable portion of this film, I was thinking to myself, where's my crumbling abbey in Spain? Demon or no demon? You know, where is my crumbling abbey? Because, you know, as somebody who is a widow, I did not inherit a crumbling abbey in Spain. I did not inherit a crumbling abbey that came with its own fully fledged demon and nor did Russell Crowe rock up to my crumbling abbey in a Vespa and know that is not a euphemism. I found the entire story incredibly predictable and if you think of every single trope of an exorcism story, oh it was wedged in there and magnified and look they're not getting any better. You know it's not particularly interesting. And I also thought to myself, because when, when the young boy gets possessed, it's not a spoiler, it happens quite early on in the film. When the young boy gets possessed, one of the first sort of possession-y, demon-y things that he does is, oh, it, he grabs his mother's breast and makes comments about being breastfed. Now, he's like 12 years old or whatever. And I wanted to crawl inside myself and never be seen again because it made me feel so uncomfortable. I understand that's partly the point of it. But I just felt like, you know, what, how far are we going to push this narrative of small children being possessed and then they start swearing and shouting and being really sexualized? Like, really, it, do, do we have nothing else to explore in the realms of potential possession? And it got me thinking about the film Little Nicky, which is a weird segue, but just bear with me. And I haven't seen Little Nicky in very many years and I can only assume it's probably problematic at this stage. But in that film, if I remember correctly, when the demons came to Earth, they possessed people of influence, people of power. And they did it without the puking nails or puking up dead birds and, you know, twisting their neck around and vomiting blood, whatever. They did it without all of that. And while that is obviously a comedy film, How have we not gotten to the point with possession films where it could be just slightly more subtle and slightly less predictable? And here's the other thing, and I'm going to get a bit serious for a minute. The script writing in this story was incredibly problematic at points. And at other points, it just just wasn't well scripted. It wasn't good script writing. Um, There is a moment in this film where Russell Crowe's character and the priest who is, you know, helping him out they uncover this story, this this secret that the Vatican have been keeping, which is that any of the atrocities that were committed in the name of the church, like the Spanish Inquisition, for example, or committed by prominent church members, such as the clerical abuse scandal and the subsequent covering up of the clerical abuse scandal by members, prominent members of the Vatican, was those things were committed by people who were possessed. Um, by a particular demon or by this, you know, these 200 demons or whatever it is the story is. And I just thought to myself, absolutely not. In the year of our Lord 2023, are we really going to be sitting here saying, oh no, this wasn't done by bad people, it was done by demons. So actually, please don't blame those people or please don't blame the Catholic Church for the things that happened. 
That is not an okay thing to suggest in this day and age. And to be really clear, I am somebody who was raised Catholic and I I would no longer identify as Catholic, but members of my family do. And I have no judgment for anybody who identifies as being Catholic. Not any, no judgment at all. But I think it is absolutely acceptable and it should be a case in this day and age that you can recognise that terrible things were done in the name of the church, that clergy within the church also did absolutely horrendous things and that in periods of time in history, the church covered those things up. And I think it needs to be recognised that those things were done by people and that people are to blame for those things that happened. Because otherwise, what does that say to living victims of clerical abuse and people who are, you know, the victims of generational trauma that has been caused by clerical abuse? It just says, oh, hang on a second, actually, um, it was the devil that did it and it was demons that did it. It wasn't anything to do with the people who perpetrated it. It just really, it really, really wound me up. I thought, in this day and age, are you joking me? And I just want to reiterate, because I don't usually get particularly serious about things on the podcast, I'm by no means judging anybody's faith. People have a right to believe whatever they want to believe in. And if that means that you identify as Catholic, then I respect that and I fully respect your belief. But I'm going to stop there because if I keep going ranting about that, I will rant for the rest of eternity. And that's probably other people's ideas of hell. So I'm not going to do that. I don't know what I want to give this film. I feel like three stars, it's fine. You know, it's not particularly interesting. It doesn't offer anything new. It's clearly set itself up for a series or at least a sequel. So maybe watch this space. But, it, you know, it didn't, didn't blow me away. I'm going to give it three stars. But... In regard to problematic script writing, it might be a one star also. I'm not entirely sure. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. So let's get into our story this week. Now our story this week is actually split into two separate stories and the reason for that is the original story that I chose to do actually wasn't as long as I thought it was so I went on the hunt for other good ghost stories that could be linked to it and I found a particularly interesting one, one that was different and one that I didn't really expect to read about. So the podcast has quite a number of listeners in the country of India and every so often when I do call outs on social media to say, hey, what kind of episodes do you guys want to hear? I'm inundated with people who say I want to hear more Indian ghost stories and we have so many listeners dedicated listeners that live in India that send in their listener stories that comment all the time that listen all the time so I thought to myself okay let's have a look and see what suggestions people have made for Indian ghost stories and this story so the Bangar Fort was the story that was suggested time and time again so let's get into it. India is the seventh largest country by area and the most populous country in the world. So therefore, one could assume 
that there would be bucket loads of ghost stories hailing from South Asia. Nestled in the hills of the Alwar district in the region of Rajasthan is what is allegedly the most haunted place in India, the Bangar Fort. There are undoubtedly places in the world that you simply need to look at and know they are haunted. From old asylums to crumbling castles, some places just have that vibe. The Bangar Fort is an ancient, gated and uninhabited village that is surrounded by old crumbling walls and ramparts that are shattered and no longer fit for purpose. It was once glorious, an array of shops, houses, temples, all watched over by a palace that was renowned for its grandeur and its opulence. Bangar Fort was once the home of Madho Singh, a famed general to the emperor, and was founded in 1573. But now? Now it sits desolate and foreboding, casting a shadow over the surrounding villages and haunting the hillside. A sign posted outside the ruins by the Archaeological Survey of India simply reads, Entering the borders of Bangar before sunrise and after sunset is strictly prohibited. Legal action would be taken against anybody who does not follow these instructions. For many, the warning is layered. The ASI are concerned about unwitting members of the public getting injured by the crumbling ruins. But there is a whispering that the ASI had an ulterior motive. It is believed that it is not just rats and monkeys that call the place home, but that spirits reside there. Many people believe that the ruins of this once proud place are cursed and to go there after dark is to risk your life. Interestingly, the history of Bangar is not entirely clear, but what we do know is that in 1783 there was a mass exodus of people. No one is really sure why these people left, but the result was that the now abandoned Bangar fell into complete disrepair. Many speculate that the reason for the mass exodus was due to the Great Famine, an event known as the Chalisa. Further to that, Bangar had been invaded by a rival ruler, Jah Singh II, in 1720. So there is a possibility that there was already instability in rulership, which was then deepened and solidified by famine. It is interesting that there is such an ambiguity to the history of Bangar, and it seems that these blanks have only further entrenched the supernatural legends that surround the place. There are two main legends that are told about the ghost village of India and the first concerns the mystic holy man, Balu Nath. Balu Nath lived in the area alone and peacefully, long before the village was ever constructed. He lived quietly in the hills and meditated all day long in the forests. Local people would quietly approach him for help and advice, for healing and for cures. The land was seen to be his, and he was one with the land, and some people believed he was immortal. It seemed that he had been there for generations, and that he would be there long after the villagers were gone. The great ruler, Bhagwan Das, approached Balunath before he built Bangar, seeking his permission to build a fort on the holy man's sacred land. Balunath agreed and gave his blessings, but on one condition. Bhagwan Das could never build any structure so high that it would cast a shadow over Balu Nath's home or to cast a shadow over his meditations in the forest. He proclaimed, Should the shadows of your palaces at any point touch me, your city will be no more. I shall have it committed to the dust and the wind. He threatened that a dark and terrible curse would descend upon the whole region and it would be turned into rack and ruin. You can imagine the outcome of this story. The ruler agreed. He said that he would never build a structure taller than three stories and the village and Balunath lived in harmony. But of course, as time passes and rulers change, 
The stories and the threat of the curse seemed further and further away. Was it even real at all? I mean, there was rumours of a man in the forest, but was he really magic? Could he really cast a curse? And slowly but surely, the village grew into a town. The population expanded to 14,000, and it became a bustling hub in Balunath's place of peace. It was noisy, and it polluted the air and the land, and the buildings began to creep upwards, casting long shadows over the forests. And Balunath was true to his word. The curse slowly seeped into the town, its tendrils creeping up the buildings and infiltrating the homes, and the town became a ruin. Balunath eventually did die and was buried in the abandoned town, perhaps as a celebration of how he had taken his land back. His spirit still roams the streets and the palace when darkness falls. The second legend is that of Rani Ratnavati, the beautiful princess of Bangar. She was renowned far and wide for her beauty and anyone who laid eyes on her was said to fall in love with her. She had many admirers and one of them was a black magician named Singhaya. Singhaya was not prepared to be rejected by this woman. She was beautiful and he wanted to be with her. So he decided that the way he would do this was by using his black magic and casting a love spell. Singhaya cast a spell on a bottle of perfumed oil that the princess wanted, but she was wise to his tricks. When she realised that he was trying to cast a spell on her, she smashed the bottle onto the ground and the contents splattered everywhere. The liquid that had been inside the bottle congealed into a mass which got bigger and bigger to the shock of the growing crowd. As it grew, it took on the shape of a boulder and hurtled towards the dark magician who had been watching on ready to claim his bride. As he lay dying, he was not prepared to go without exacting his revenge and he cursed the town before taking his final breath. But there are other versions of the story where the beautiful princess Ratnavati was an evil sorceress who kidnapped children to use in rituals designed to preserve her life and her beauty. She is said to have fallen in love with a man of lower social status and having been denied the right to marry him, she cursed the town to be blighted with pain, misfortune and suffering. Ratnavati's spirit is said to roam the now desolate streets desperately trying to find her long-lost love. These stories are a part of local folklore that surrounds a place that seems to exude magic and mystery. It is a place that has an almost romantic bleakness, so of course these stories have been passed down through the ages. Perhaps these stories grew up simply to try and understand how and why this seemingly magnificent place was mysteriously abandoned, or perhaps they were created to try and understand and explain what local people were seeing and experiencing in the ruins of Bangar. Locals avoid entering the ruins, particularly after dark, and the stories of its hauntings almost seem to attract more people to visit. The curse of Bangar Fort is said to be still active and when the darkness falls, the fort comes alive. The local people claim that crops will not grow within the fort, that the curse has seeped into the soil and the destruction that drove people out in 1783 still destroys everything that attempts to live there. Not only that, but the curse is believed to be so strong that any building that is built there will have its roof completely caved in. Locals and tourists who venture near the fort at night are said to hear the sounds of children playing or people laughing and the sounds of ethereal music and the sounds of people dancing and celebrating. A shadowy figure is said to have been seen standing forlornly in one of the upper windows of the palace. The figure is said to be the figure of Balu Nath, surveying the land and the fort that brought him so much pain and in turn brought so much pain and suffering to the people. A dark wraith 
is also said to be seen standing on the hillside surveying the fort and it is believed that the figure is that of the black magician Singhaya. Shadow people are seen darting in and out of ruined buildings and orbs and lights are reported frequently. According to Brent Swanser when writing for Mysterious Universe in July 2018, there have been numerous strange deaths that are linked to the fort. And it has been also investigated by paranormal investigators. An extract from this article reads, There have also been sinister tales of freak deaths and accidents associated with the locale. A notorious one is the story of a man who fell into a well and injured his head while exploring the ruins by some accounts, pushed by unseen hands. As he was being brought to the hospital, the vehicle was involved in a serious crash, and he and two others perished. It is probably just an unfortunate accident and a stroke of bad luck, but locals say it is due to the curse. In another incident, there was a bus of over 50 people who were riding through the area, and it experienced a terrible crash. Although most of the passengers were injured, Student Taran Akash and his two friends suffered severe injuries even though they were sitting far apart on the bus. But what has that got to do with the fort? Well, allegedly, Taran Akash and his two friends had gone to the fort the night before. They didn't heed the warnings. They went in after dark and they firmly believed that the reason that they were the only people on the bus that were injured, despite the fact they were sitting far apart, was because they had ignored the curse and entered the fort after dark. But is it a curse or a coincidence? Various paranormal investigators and psychics have flocked here and have come away with their own tales of strangeness. Rocky Singh and Mayor Sharma, hosts of one of India's most well-known paranormal shows, India's Most Haunted, have voiced their conviction that the area is indeed very much haunted and when they visited the town, they claimed that they had heard a woman screaming and had had rocks thrown at them from the darkness. Rocky would say, this was the only location where Mayor Sharma refused to do an isolation session. If I were to say that any of the places I've been to in the last 20 years is haunted, I'd say Bangar. Stories of trespassers coming across freak accidents, ghosts and anomalous noises abound here, and the legends continue to swirl. Then, of course, there is that sign warning people away after daylight, which is heavily blamed on the hauntings. Yet, this is probably just an urban legend, as there are many reasons to keep people away since the area is full of decrepit, unsteady rock structures and animals such as leopards and tigers prowl the area at night. Especially since the whole thing sits up against the edge of the Sariska Tiger Reserve. One superintending archaeologist of ASI Vasant Kumar Swarnakar has said of the tale every monument in the country has the same sign it has nothing to do with ghosts or spirits all of that is rubbish there is also the fact that these are ancient crumbling ruins in desperate need of restoration so it is perhaps to be expected that there should be accidents for those trying to climb around in them and this is probably another reason the sign is in place it is uncertain just what forces are at work here or if there is any truth to the legends and the tales of this once grand ghost town. Are these just old spooky tall tales and superstition, or is there something more to it all? Whatever is going on with Bangar, it certainly is an eerie place laced with dark lore. One look at the empty streets with their monkeys picking through long-abandoned buildings and decrepit, weed-choked temples and one can see that it is certainly a creepy locale, and when the sun begins to dip and the shadows come out to play, that if this isn't a haunted, cursed place, then it very well should be. Now you know I love a good local legend. I just love these stories where you have a crumbling ruin or some building in a local area, and there's all these stories that grow up around them, and they're passed down from generation to generation, and parents tell them to their kids and then those kids tell them to their kids and the stories grow and adapt and change or they stay the same or there's different versions of the story so if you are Indian and you're listening to this you might have heard like a different version to this story you might be from the local area and you might know a different 
version again of the story. I just went with what I could see as kind of a good general overview of the two main stories that are said about this place. So let's start with the sign. Now, I will say I want to believe the sign is there because of the ghosts and shit. I want to believe that. But I'm more inclined to believe that the sign is there to stop people getting injured and or eaten by a tiger or a leopard, which I'm pretty sure I'd rather see a ghost than see a tiger coming towards me in the dead of night. I also, <laughs> I watched um a video from a YouTuber called Amy's Crypt. I think I've used some of her stuff before for research, but she did a two-part uh, video series on visiting Bangor Fort and she started off during the day, you know, walking around the fort, talking about some of the history and then did the second part where she did a paranormal investigation at night time. And let me tell you, I can understand why they don't want people going in there after dark. Because literally there's points in the video where she like climbs to the top of a building and then there's just a big hole in the ground. Just a big, big black hole in the middle of the ground where you fall down into it and presumably you're never seen again. Or she's bopping around and she finds a well that is uncovered, that is just there. Big black hole, again, middle of the ground. And if if it was dark, you'd be straight down head first into that hole. It's no wonder people would be falling around and getting injured. But I imagine the sign of, you know, don't go in after sundown has done nothing to dispel the rumours that this place is wildly haunted. And you know what? Like, I love the fact that these stories are so interesting and these local legends are so rich and there's kind of fun. You know, you've got a local medicine man, like a magic man, a man that lives in the forest, is a healer. He is, I think in, I watched a BBC video Uh, where they went to Bangar Fort. I think it's on YouTube and it was only like six minutes long, but they referred to him as like a tantric man. And he just said, look, I don't mind you building this place on what is, you know, my my sacred land, but just don't, don't make it too high. I don't want shadows ruining my meditation spots. And you know what? I, I understand his logic. He's got these little serene things that he does every day. He's got his routine every day. And then suddenly you've got all these people coming in and being like building up all of their building up all of their buildings and gentrifying the area I'd be pretty annoyed too would I be annoyed enough to be cursing people yeah probably probably equally we love a maybe potentially evil princess love the story of her outwitting the the man practicing dark and black magic being like oh you think you're gonna get me with your love potion I think not smashy smashy and then a big boulder comes and crushes him to death Love that energy. But in, in reality, it is interesting that so many people apparently left this place so quickly and I would love to know why. So I, I was watching that same BBC short film and a local historian said that the population of Bangar Fort was like 14,000 people and then literally overnight the population dropped by half, including the king. So the king and 7,000 people allegedly left overnight. And of course, it is very likely that this was to do with famine and maybe it didn't have overnight. Maybe it was to do with the sudden death of a lot of people due to starvation and a way for people to deal with that trauma potentially is to create stories around where all those people went to. What I will say, though, about this story is that it was kind of difficult to find first person experiences of Bangar Fort online. So obviously a lot of the stories that you read online, the articles, etc., they talk about the um, hearing voices, hearing music, hearing dancing, etc., etc. at night time in and around the fort. And in the Amy's Crypt videos, like she, the second part of the videos where she is there at night time doing a paranormal investigation, the noises of the animals around and about the area are absolutely petrifying. They are screechy, loud. You can hear animals being attacked. Obviously, there is the really very real danger of tigers and leopards. And there's a bit in the video where her and her, I think it's her partner who does, who makes the videos for her, as in films the videos. They are approached by security guards and told, hey, you know, the reason why we don't want people in here at nighttime is because tigers be hunting and they they will eat you. But it does seem genuinely to be a pretty freaky place at night time outside of all of that and that probably the noises of animals and the threat 
of tigers have fallen down a well and never been seen again probably add to the atmosphere. But I did find a couple of short stories online that were from people who have allegedly had experiences there. So let's get into them. I am from Alwar and Bangar is in the municipality of Alwar district. Since childhood, I have heard various stories about Bangar, but I would like to quote one. This story was told by my father. We went there when I was nine years old, so I don't remember much, but according to my father, when our family was walking near the fort of Bangar, we saw a man who was talking to himself. Being a child, I wanted to ask him who he was talking to, but my father resisted. While coming back, we saw that man again. He was walking by my side. He was telling us the real story behind Bangar. My father tried to get rid of him, but he was desperate to tell us the story. He was old and therefore he was walking slowly. My father picked me up and carried me and tried to walk fast to get rid of him. You must be thinking how cruel we were because we didn't try to help that old person, but I would like to mention that we gave him food on the first meeting, but later on some local people warned us. My father's plan worked and we were far ahead of him, but the strangest thing happened. When we looked back to see whether he was following us or not, he disappeared. You must be thinking I am joking, but the people behind us told us there was nobody following us. There was never an old man behind us. My father was so confused. So is it possible that the local legends are true? Is it possible that the old man who lived in the forest is actually still haunting the place? I mean, if you were Balunath and you were still haunting the place, what is the one thing you'd want to do is tell people this story, tell people your story about how you had agreed for that place to be built on your land and then they reneged on their end of the deal. And the second story that I found is really, really short, but it is definitely worth hearing. After hearing all the horror stories, a group of friends decided to go to Bangar Fort during the night. They reached there around 8.30pm and started exploring the place. At around 12.30am, they heard a female voice shouting from the fort and they decided to leave. Horrified by what had happened, they all started running towards the main gate. And right then, a wall fell in front of them. They started running again until they finally got out of the fort. Do you know what? I totally get this as well because when I was looking up stuff about this fort and watching videos online, like first of all, it is very beautiful. Second of all, I was thinking, how much are flights to India? How can I get to this place? But I also know that I would I would definitely be that person who I'd probably have the most amazing ghostly experience and be like, this is definite proof. And then I'd be eaten by a tiger or fall down a well. That is what would happen to me. Do I believe that this place is haunted by a magic man who put a curse on the land or do I believe that this place is haunted by an evil princess who like ate children or whatever it was not necessarily I think those stories are probably part of local folklore however this obviously was a place that was ravaged by famine and starvation and with famine and starvation we know comes disease and it also seems to be a place that was raided that people tried to invade so it would have had its its own share of trauma and its own share of terrible things that happened. And it's very interesting that nobody went back post-famine, that it has stayed empty and abandoned. So to be honest, it wouldn't surprise me if there's strange things that happen there, strange things that happen when when it gets dark, you know, voices and singing and celebrations and the sound of crying and all of those things. It wouldn't surprise me at all. And I actually thought that this episode was going to be shorter than it has turned out to be. We're nearly 40 minutes in and I did add an add-on to this episode which is about the haunted beach of India called Dumas Beach. Now I didn't write this, I found this in an article from 2015. So it's October the 8th, 2015, written by ben- Brent Swanser, my old pal. And it is called the haunted beach of India and I thought, you know what, we'll add it in because it's not very often we talk about haunted beaches so let's get into it. Ghosts and the paranormal are probably the last thing on anyone's mind when they are at the beach. We go to the beach for the fun, the scenery, the sand and the feeling of the sea breeze and the sun on our skin. We go here to get away from the darkness and beaches are likely the last places anyone thinks of as the haunts of spectres and phantoms. 
Yet it seems that even here with the ocean views and the frolicking beachcombers, we are not safe from tales of the mysterious and the strange. For even these places can apparently become instilled with the supernatural and the weird. One beach in India has long been ground zero for a wide variety of ghostly phenomena, high strangeness and odd happenings. It is a place heavily saturated with the bizarre, and which shows that even in a sun-flecked beach paradise, the reaching claws of the supernatural cannot always be escaped. Located along the Arabian Sea, 21 kilometres southwest of the city of Surat, in the Indian state of Gujarat, is Dumas Beach, which is named for the nearby village of Dumas. With its distinctive black sand and quaint and charming views of the Arabian Sea, as well as its numerous health resorts, affordable accommodations, its promenade full of snack stands, shops and restaurants, and other adjacent sites of interest, Dumas Beach has over the years become one of the top destinations for tourists in Gujarat, among both locals and international visitors. Here you will find people of all nationalities playing in the water or sitting along the black sand beach, soaking in the sun and enjoying the cool breezes from the sea. Yet for all of the tourism and fun in the sun, Dumas Beach also has a dark, morbid history. Several decades ago, the area was used as a cremation ground for the bodies of the dead, and it would not have been uncommon to have seen the swirls of smoke wafting up above the beach from the burning corpses in those days. Cremation is a typical method of burial for India's majority Hindu population, as it is believed that reducing the body to ashes more smoothly expedites the release of the soul from its earthly tethers, and is thought to be the most spiritually beneficial way to treat the dead. At Dumas Beach, the dead would be cremated and the resulting ash scattered into the sea, which considering Hindu tradition is a perfectly normal thing, but has lent the area a rather ominous reputation as a place where some particularly tormented souls of the cremated, or those who refuse to leave behind their earthly trappings, have opted to remain to haunt the seaside or even torment those who would come here. Additionally, there have long been stories of people drowning at Dumas Beach under mysterious circumstances or even completely disappearing altogether. It is this history as a cremation ground and a place of strange deaths and disappearances, as well as its at times rather menacing appearance with its black sand, rather muddy water and abundance of skeletal-looking thorny wild shrubs that have made Dumas Beach into a spooky location infused with the paranormal that routinely pops up on lists of the most haunted places in India. While the daylight hours appear to be the domain of vacationers and free of creepy incidents, there are numerous purported strange phenomena said to plague Dumas Beach as soon as darkness falls, when the ghostly activity is said to become active. One of the most commonly reported occurrences is the presence of disembodied voices on the wind that are known to whisper to visitors all manner of things, from begging for help, to calling people's names, to issuing urgent warnings to stay away from the water, to go no further or to turn back. At times the voices say nothing and are said to merely giggle, murmur, moan or even howl and scream. There is also a profound sense of sadness, despondence and desolation that is said to hang over the beach, affecting the mood of visitors. And when this thick palpable feeling of forlornness is at its strongest, it is believed that the wind will pick up to relentlessly fierce gales. At other times, the cool night air of the beach allegedly takes on a sort of electrically charged quality, and a smell almost like ozone can be detected lacing the atmosphere here. This may have something to do with why cameras and other electrical equipment have a habit of malfunctioning at the beach. Other odd smells are also reported from Dumas Beach, with a malevolent and inexplicable smell of rotten decay from some unknown source occasionally filling the air and overcoming visitors to the point that the stench becomes unbearable. Of course, any supposedly haunted location is going to have ghost sightings, and Dumas Beach has plenty of those as well. Shadowy figures are said to walk along the edge of the water at night, sometimes disappearing into the waves and sometimes merely suddenly vanishing altogether. Most often, these dark spectral entities are described as humanoid, 
but a few reports speak of phantom black hounds that lope along the sands and even chase people from time to time. There are also shiny orbs seen flitting about over the beach, which are either seen directly or show up in photographs later. The water itself is said to be prowled by a horrific white apparition that rises from the sea to try and lure visitors to a watery grave and indeed many of the drownings and mysterious disappearances that have occurred on the beach have been blamed on ghosts. Even the colour of the black sand itself has been attributed to supernatural forces converging here, although black sand is in fact not particularly uncommon and is typically the result of volcanic soil. Perhaps one of the oddest and most persistent phenomena reported from Dumas Beach is the effect that the area allegedly has on dogs. By all accounts, they seem to absolutely despise the place. Dogs that live in the vicinity are said to howl and bark all night long in unison for no apparent reason and those who have tried to walk their dogs on the beach have reported all sorts of strange behaviour. It is said that dogs that are brought onto the beach will often stop dead in their tracks and refuse to continue any further or start inexplicably barking or growling viciously as if at something or someone that isn't there. Dogs have been said to display other strange behaviour in the vicinity of the beach as well, such as mindlessly spinning in circles, cowering in fear for no reason, sudden bouts of uncharacteristic aggressiveness, incessantly darting back and forth or appearing to chase something that only they can see. Interestingly, all of this only happens at night or in the twilight hours, and dogs at the beach supposedly behave normally during the daytime. Some have claimed that this strange behaviour, aggression and fear shown by dogs at the beach is due to their sensing something bizarre that humans cannot, and see it as evidence that the beach is indeed haunted. So what is going on at Dumas Beach? Is this place truly haunted or is all this spooky folklore and superstition? To be sure, many of the mysterious elements of the beach could have mundane explanations. Beaches at night can be dangerous places, especially when mixed with alcohol, which could account for the drownings and disappearances, with some of the bodies being dragged out to sea and never found. In order to try and prevent accidents on the beaches at night time, areas such as Goa have officially banned alcoholic beverages on beaches after sundown, so it seems that this could be behind at least some of the unfortunate deaths rather than evil supernatural forces. The area's creepy history as a site for cremation and the local lore that restless spirits stay behind could also cause people to misconstrue perfectly normal sounds of the wind or perhaps see things that aren't there. Yet not all of the weirdness reported from here seems so easily written off. Perhaps the phenomena are a complicated mix of the mundane folklore superstition and the unexplained. Is this all explainable or is there something more? Are there indeed forces beyond our understanding at work at Dumas Beach in some capacity? Dumas Beach remains a popular tourist spot despite its mysterious and sinister reputation and actually seems like a fun place to visit with a lot of attractions, although it seems that locals are quick to warn visitors not to go on the beach at night, even though there is no particular law against it. So anyone with the courage to try can freely try to take the beachside stroll under the moonlight. It might be best to leave your dog at home though. So the reason that I found this particular article so interesting, um, and like I said, it was written by Brent Swanser, October the 8th, 2015, The Haunted Beach of India, it's called, and the link to it is in the description of this episode. Is this report that dogs were behaving strangely on this beach at night time. And it's really interesting because one of the things that people request that I talk about really regularly on the podcast is the phenomena of Overton Bridge in Scotland where numerous dogs over the years have literally inexplicably thrown themselves off the bridge. Some have thrown themselves off the bridge, climbed back up onto the bridge only to throw themselves off again. And there, there's never really been an adequate explanation as to why they're doing this. So, in I think it was in like 2019, maybe it was posited that it was uh, due to the smell of mink under the bridge that was causing the dogs to throw themselves off. And um, apparently there was tests done on dogs 
to see how they responded to the scent of different animals and they tended to respond quite aggressively to mink but it's never really been kind of conclusively agreed what the reason for this is and it reminded me so much of that that you've got these dogs who are behaving really bizarrely but only at night time and I do wonder if as Brent Swanser pointed out in his article the history of that beach and its association to death and to cremation even though cremation obviously is a perfectly normal thing um if that has caused these stories and that lore to grow up around it but I did think it was just an interesting little story to end on about an interesting little place and it's true we don't often think of beaches especially touristy beaches as being paranormal places but apparently this beach is pretty damn paranormal but I will say it is very common on beaches for people to underestimate the power of the water and the power of currents and say if they were drinking going into the water how much the alcohol might affect them um so I I think mysterious deaths and disappearances on beaches like in the water itself probably are to do with currents and tides and people not being as strong as swimmers as they think they are when when you're up against um when you're up against actual when you're up against the ocean I mean you're you're it's pretty dangerous But I'm not going to the beach to be chased by a big phantom dog. I'll tell you that much. No way. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. The links to all of the sources that were used for this episode are in the description as per usual. If you would like to send in your spooky story, you can do so by emailing it to reallifeghoststoriespodcast.gmail.com. You can also check out the website reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. And if you are desperate for some extra spooky content, you can sign up to Patreon. That is patreon.com forward slash stories. where for $5 a month or $2 a month, you get access to heaps of extra content as well as every single main and mini episode completely ad-free. And on that note, I shall see you next time. Rory and Kid here from the award-winning podcast, This Paranormal Life. Every week we investigate a paranormal story and decide if it's real or a hoax. Like the time a guy claimed he punched Bigfoot. Or when a UFO showed up at a football game in front of thousands of people. Each episode has sound effects, music, and storytelling that feels so real, you'll never sleep again. You will. Stop it. You're going to scare away new listeners. Check out This Paranormal Life every Tuesday, wherever you listen to your podcasts.